and we're going to continue our series on Suter by Percival Everett. Since this is a series and it typically takes several weeks to get through the series, I thought I would come in since I have extra time during the week and record another episode. I am just as eager to get through this as you are because I love Percival Everett and there are other things I want to talk about, of course. Now, I haven't been on Twitter as much lately and I'm still on every day, but it hasn't really been on my mind much. I've been playing Minecraft the past few days, and you know, when I'm not playing Minecraft, I, I play other video games. Maybe I'm reading. Maybe I am playing guitar. I work a full-time job, and now I'm teaching, so it makes sense that I wouldn't be on Twitter as much, right? I haven't written anything new in quite some time. I am releasing a new poetry collection in October called Iconic Misery that is available for pre-order. It's only 99 cents, and for 99 cents, you get an ebook full of 50 poems. All of my poetry books, with the exception of Glutton for Despair, are 50 poems. Glutton Despair is a compendium of my first four poetry books. I have an even bigger poetry book coming out next year that compiles the next four, including Iconic Misery, in a paperback. It is entitled Parked in the Flower Bed. I think that's what it is. I got the title from HUD. I recently went on a Paul Newman kick, and I watched The Color of Money, HUD, and I rewatched uh, what is it? The fucking movie he made with Robert Redford after Butch Cassidy. The Sting. The Sting was kind of boring, I'm not going to lie. I remember liking it when I first saw it, but that was, God, almost 20 years ago. But I wanted to, since this is a writing podcast, I wanted to go over this this information on the Penguin Random House antitrust trial and everyone tweeting about it, but specifically April Henry's tread on Twitter about it. So I'm going to read this and just kind of talk to you about it. So in the Penguin Random House SNS antitrust trial, it was revealed that out of 58,000 trade titles published per year, half of these titles sell fewer than one dozen books, less than one dozen. That's, that's worse than self-published authors that I know, including me. I've sold Quite a few of Demise of the Trinity and my novels, with the exception of Birch, of course. And I've sold a lot of my poetry books, surprisingly. But if I had a book that sold less than one dozen, oh my god. Uh, Especially if I were traditionally published, holy shit. I'd be fucking putting a gun on my head. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 90% of titles sell fewer than 2,000 units. 90%! of books sell fewer than 2,000 units. These are all your hopes and dreams, people. All you wonderful authors out there hoping to get an agent, which is essentially a middleman between you and a publisher, because you think that you can be the next J.K. Rowling. And here we go. About 98% of the books that publishers released in 2020 sold fewer than 5,000 copies. In 2004... 
950,000 titles out of the 1 million tracked by Nielsen BookScan sold less than 99 copies. You know, you ever wonder what fills a bookstore? It's full of books that you've never even heard of before, and you might think, well, there's someone out there who's going to buy each of one of those. Nope. And you look at clearance racks, and you see these hard covers and paperbacks that have great art on them by authors you've never heard of before. Yeah, that's that's what you have to reckon with if you think that you can make it as a traditionally published author. I'm not talking about this to dog trad published authors. Not at all, but I see a lot of snobbery out there regarding self-publishing. And my own reasoning for self-publishing, I've already talked about on the podcast, but I'll go into it briefly. I actually queried agents from 2016 until, let's see, 2000 and almost 2019. And in 2020, I published my first novel, Demise of the Trinity. Now, when I first joined Twitter in 2019, I had no intention of publishing Demise myself. None of my novels would have been published traditionally had it not been for being on Twitter and communicating with other writers. I'd already self-published, I want to say, I know I've self-published Cornbread Poetry, Disease of Ambition, and Titleus. Those were my first three. And then when I was on Twitter, I published Mediocre Endings. And when I first joined Twitter, I know I've said this before, but I was told by tons of authors who were following me, I would support you, but I don't read poetry. And ironically, my poetry books are probably selling more than their terrible books about wizards and shit. Today I'm drinking Fuji Apple sparkling water out of my Copper Yeti. Mmm, refreshing. So, other than gloating about publishing and whatnot, I am just so bored with other people online and so bored with other authors online and all the talk about writing and whatnot. And I have this Twitter, and I'm not following people back anymore. I decided that last week. So, instead of continuously growing in terms of my followers, I'm now actually slightly declining because I'm not following back everyone who follows me. And I'm, I, I use an app to track who follows and unfollows me. And the people who would have followed me and just wanted me back for a follow, never interacting with me, they, of course, unfollow me because I don't follow them back, but they would have never bought any of my books. They never would have interacted with me. They never would have given me anything to read that I would have wanted to read. So it wouldn't have been a beneficial relationship other than being a number to someone. And I'm more than a number to someone, and you are too. Therefore, I'm not saying that People shouldn't follow each other back. I know that's how the game is played and all. But look, I haven't made more sales as a result of getting more followers. I've made sales as a result of uh, tweeting the hell out of things, making things seem appealing to people, crafting a persona on Twitter that is not necessarily my own, forming relationships with people, stuff like that. 
So I'm not selling thousands of copies at a time, but I am selling books. Now, I'm not selling short stories so much. And what's interesting to me is that while I do appreciate everyone who has bought those short stories, they seem to kind of take it personally when I say that nobody's buying the short stories. I'm not calling you nobody. But when only a handful of people are buying the short stories, then my whole experiment has failed. I'm on week seven of this, and you may recall seven weeks, well, it was actually more than seven weeks ago when I concocted this idea because my short story books don't sell. They just don't. But poetry books do, my novels do, except for Birch, but for some reason, the short story books don't. Now, what's ironic is that when I first put out Toxic Literature, more people pre-ordered that than any other book I've ever put out. But at the same time, it, it, it wasn't an audience that really pursued my other works as far as I can tell. They saw the cover and they bought it for 99 cents, la-di-da. And then I republished it with a slightly modified title and added content as Toxic Literature, Stories of the Trinity, which was the original title to begin with, but uh, no one bothered really buying that other than a select few. And I gave it a nice, cool new cover, and I said that it had added content. And part of the reason why I did that is because someone stole the cover art that I used for the original toxic literature. And there wasn't really a whole lot that I could do because I used a, a public domain image, but since someone saw that I used it, they decided to swipe it. And that's not the first time it's happened, and it wasn't the last time it's happened. So for most of my book covers, I have used my own photography. I didn't for um, either version of Price of the Trinity. Demise of the Trinity has been the same painting the whole time that I didn't paint. Uh, Birch is just an hourglass. But most of my poetry books, um, they're all my cover art, my own design, my own photography. And that's really the way to go. And if I could go that way for everything, I would. I tried with Birch. I took photos of an hourglass that I have, but I couldn't really get it the same way. So if anyone ends up stealing that, I doubt they would because the book hasn't sold shit. Uh, I'm, I'm probably going to end up doing a free giveaway for the short stories, but I'm, I'm holding on on Birch for now. I guess I need to, to market it more and cover it on the podcast because uh, reading it on my two and a half men episodes didn't really do anyone any favors. But I wanted to give my loyal listeners... Um, a, a preview of it, although not all of my loyal listeners went out and bought a copy, of course, such as the double-edged sword of having a freed podcast, I guess. Uh, I know you all enjoy hearing me complain about it, too. But anyway, I'm going to skip ahead in this book, so we're going to go to chapter four. The next day I show up for batting practice and I find a note on my locker telling me to see Lou Tyler. And so I go into his office. I give a knock and he yells for me to come in. Inside I don't see him anywhere and I call out his name and he answers from the bathroom. That you, Suter? Yeah. I'm taking a massive grunt here. Make yourself at home. 
Lou's office is filled with stuffed animals, and I'm paying close attention to his newest addition, a big grizzly bear. Lou took up taxidermy when his wife died four years ago, and since he's been stuffing every dead thing in sight. He's got birds hanging from the ceiling and snakes on the floor, and a goat in the corner, and now a bear. He's got even more displays all over his home. The players got together and managed to keep the creatures out of the clubhouse, but overflow might send them in there yet. What is it, Suter? The bathroom door swings open, and there's Lou sitting on the toilet, holding the sports news. You say something? No, I tell him. How do you like my bear? He smiles broadly. He's a big one, I says, looking back at the monster. Took me a month to stuff that sucker. I followed the jagged line where the bear was sewed up from his neck to his crotch. Tell you what, Lou says, I'm going to be on this bowl for a while, so if you don't mind, I'll just talk to you from here. Sure, I don't care. Here. I'm used to it, but you might have some trouble. Give a blast of that stuff when it gets too strong. You know Roy Rogers' stuffed trigger? Oh, yeah? Yeah, he had him stuffed. He didn't do it personally. I heard he wants to be stuffed himself when he dies, and then he wants to be set up on trigger. Ain't that something? Sure is. I wrote him a letter telling him that I'd be glad to stuff him for free, but I ain't had no response yet. It's been seven weeks now. I hope he ain't dead yet. Better give a spray of that stuff. Holding up the can, I press the button and shoot myself in the face. That's happened to me before. When I was two years old, I sprayed myself in the eye with Lysol. I didn't do it on purpose. That's wildflower scent. Watch the bees when you go outside. I wipe my face with my sleeve. I ate a shitload of spaghetti that my daughter made up last night. If I never see spaghetti again, it'll be too soon. I'm just standing there looking at this vulture he's got hanging over his desk. That's a turkey vulture. Look, I'm going to forget you mispracticed yesterday. I nod and look back at him. Now, that slump of yours. You know, it wasn't but a few years ago that you blacks was allowed in this league. The way you've been playing lately, they might kick you all out. I don't take offense because I know he doesn't mean any harm and I don't say anything. My Kindle's gonna fall over. I just need a sip of water, goddammit. I still got some post-nasal crap going on. You got three more years left on your contract, and both of us know you're good, so I've been talking to the bigwigs, and we all agree you should take some time off. In the middle of the season? The way you've been playing, you ain't doing the team no good. Besides, it might help you to be fresh for the end of the season. We'll put you on the disabled list, your leg. So when is this vacation supposed to start? Right now, he raises his butt from the stool and looks into the toilet. Look away, I gotta wipe myself. I look at the vulture. Okay, that's got it. I look at him and he's fastening up his britches and I says, Is that it? I guess so. So I leave and I go down to clean my personal stuff and... David Nix is standing beside my locker. What's the story, asked David. Taking a little vacation. He sits down. Oh, yeah? No big deal on the disabled list. I need some time to think about things anyway. They didn't ax your contract or anything like that. No, they can't do that. Can they? David shrugged his shoulders. 
Sometimes I think they can do whatever they want. They didn't say anything about shipping you to the miners, did they? No, nothing like that. Not yet. They got Ortega filling my spot, and let's face it, he ain't a hot glove. A quarter falls out of my locker and rolls on the aisle, and I chase it. And when I looks up, there's Ortega, tying up his shoes around the corner. There he is, looking at me with his angry Puerto Rican eyes. How's it going, Ortega? I ask. He finishes tying his shoes and gets up and walks out, all the while mumbling in Spanish. I turn and walk back to David. Man, I tell you, I can't do anything right. Maybe you do need a rest. You want to come over to the house after the game, I ask? Have a beer? Sure, David slaps him on the backside with his glove and heads out. All over the ground by the pond were dead sparrows with BBs deep in their bodies. I didn't know what came over me, but I started picking them up. I pulled the bottom of my t-shirt out and away from my belly and put the birds in the net it formed. With my shirt full of dead sparrows, I headed back toward the house. So they say that serial killers have a tendency to be cruel to animals when they're younger, and I want to give little Suter, Craig Suter, the benefit of the doubt and say, oh, he's just being a kid and he's got a BB gun, you know, country kids and all that shit. But you have to wonder about all the kids who do crazy shit when they're younger and don't grow up to be serial killers. I mean, I think about this all the time. And I'm going to unwrap a cough drop over here. I've got some honeys. They're my favorite cough drop outside of Fisherman's Friend. You know, I'll do a podcast on cough drops another time, but I, I picked this up from my mom, I think. When I was growing up, she always used to to be into cough drops. Oh, that's a lovely sound, isn't it? We're doing ASMR on this podcast, goddammit. And if you don't like it, go fuck yourself. Because I'm Patrick, and I'll fucking say where the fuck I want to, and you're a pussy. That's from Angry Grandpa. Anyway, um, trying to get this open. This is very professional podcasting. Oh my God. Open, for God's sakes. You son of a bitch. I've had enough of you. Get out of the wrapper. You piece of shit. Okay. We're good to go. But, you know, I was a weird kid. Especially when I was a teenager, I had long hair, I wore black, and my junior year picture that everyone's seen online, me with long hair, a fucking hardogram from the band Him, and then a Slayer shirt with blood all over it. Yeah, I was that kid. I was Eddie Munson when I was in high school. I've always wondered, like, if I was like anyone else, and I did something crazy, and I went to jail... And they had me on the news, and they were interviewing people who allegedly knew me. They'd be like, I always knew it. He was always a weirdo. He used to go through the hallways yelling about cotton and singing songs. Yeah. People are fucking annoying like that. had a friend of mine who went to prison, and now he's free. And when... (laughs) The local news interviewed people who had never met him, by the way. They were essentially exploiting him so that they could be on TV. And I was just thinking today about, 
you know, if I could give anyone any advice ever, never go on TV. Don't don't ever show up on the news because you could be memed. Don't ever go on a reality show because they exploit you. And I was offered money to appear on a reality show. Uh, not, uh, God, it would have been 2016 or so. Because someone I knew was on and they wanted me on. I'm not going to say who. And I'm not going to say what show. But I turned them down. They offered me more money. And I turned them down. And they never aired the episode. Partially because I wasn't on it. And I was apparently a huge part of the plot that they were trying to create. It, it, all, all reality TV does is exploit people. None of it's real. It's exploitation. And you would do yourself uh, serious injustice if you gave in to the little bit of money that they offer you just so you could get on TV. I dumped the birds onto my bed and counted them. Thirteen. I picked up one of the sparrows and sat silently bouncing on my fingers. I dropped the bird on my bed and went to the hall closet. I pulled down a hat box and went back into my bed and put the sparrows in it. I put the top of the box and slid it under my bed. I stretched out across the bed and imagined the lives of those birds passing up through the box springs and the mattress and into me. Later I walked over to the old school building and saw Virgil Wallace. He was sitting on his back against the pole of the basketball goal which no longer had a hoop. Virgil Wallace was about 18 and real long and skinny. One of his legs was bent and the other was straight out. He was wearing one bright red sock and one bright yellow one. His hand was in his lap and he tossed his head back and looked up at the sky. I moved toward him. I noticed a ringworm on his head. Virgil, I said. I was standing off to the side and slightly behind him. He didn't notice me. I walked around and stood right in front of him and I looked at the hand that was in his lap. He was holding the head of his penis in his hand and it was covered with a milky substance. Virgil? He looked at me. His eyes were half closed. Can I ask you a question? He nodded. Why do you pull on yourself? He held up his hand, dripping with the stuff. For this here. What is it? He looked at the stuff on his hand and then without looking at me he said... Life. He laughed out loud. Life, he repeated, looking up at me, the corners of his mouth curled slightly up. He pushed his messy hand toward me, an offer. I ran all the way home. When I walked into my bedroom, Martin was pacing around, sniffing. I want to address this because this is really weird. At no point in time has it ever been acceptable for an 18-year-old or anyone younger or older to be out in public jerking off, okay? And this is a fictional incident, allegedly. And, I mean, this is a young boy who's not really sure of what's going on. I mean, he's referring to it as pulling on yourself, and then he sees the semen on the guy's hand. And keep in mind... I'm assuming that since these two people are talking to each other and Craig Suter is a black boy, then Virgil is a young black man. And 
if he were caught in public doing this during this time period, he could be killed. So I'm wondering, as not only a reader, but also a scholar, what does this symbolize? I mean, he's holding up his semen and saying it, it represents life or that it is life. And I feel like on one hand, it must be that Craig is being pushed into manhood a lot sooner than he should, which happens to a lot of us. And he's too young to really understand what that means. I mean, he just shot 13 birds with a BB gun, hid it under his bed, and he believed that the souls of the birds might rise through him. And then he goes and he sees someone who shows him the seed of life, where life begins, in a sense. And it's an interesting juxtaposition, of course. He just murdered these innocent animals, and then he sees these, um, I won't say these sperm, because he can't see the sperm, but he sees the semen. And, of course, as soon as semen touches oxygen, it begins to die. There went my bird's bees again. So, he's surrounded by both life and death at a very young age. And his mother is going crazy. And his brother is alienating him. His father is neglecting both his brother and himself, and his mother for that matter. It's not a good situation to be in at that age. But... Seeing someone jerking off in public and then offering to essentially touch it, I mean, that is, I want to say it's traumatic. I'm not saying that it's not silly, but in a sense, it's traumatic. Skipping ahead here. So I'm sitting in the living room and Thelma is beside me on the sofa and Peter's on the floor with his toy truck, even though it's past his bedtime and neither of them has got much to say to me. The doorbell rings and I get up and let David in. Uncle David, says Peter, running to David. David picks Peter up and says, How you doing, pal? David looks at Thelma. Hey, Thelma. Hello, David. Thelma's voice sounds far off, and she barely looks at him. I'll get you a beer, I says, and I go into the kitchen and come back with two beers. So, who won? We did. 8-1. We sit down in front of the television and watch the late news. I was thinking, says David. Maybe you should go to the country for a while. That's what I'd do if I had a vacation. Thelma and Peter's eyes turn on me. Look, I said, it's, it's time for the sports. On the television, the fellow runs off some scores and mentions cliff diving in Mexico and says, a representative of the Mariners said today that team, the team will play the New York Yankees tomorrow without the services of third baseman Craig Suter, who has been put on the disabled list. He added that Suter may be out for an extended period. He said that Suter's pulled hamstring muscle needs complete rest. My son turns and looks at me and then gets up and goes to his room. I should get going, uh, David says and stands up. I see David out and turn from the door to face Thelma. Why didn't you tell me, she wants to know. I thought you just had a tonight off. I just found out when I got to the park. What does it mean? Nothing. They just want me to rest and get my head together is all. She looks at me and then walks away into the bedroom. 
I take to looking through the records and find a Charlie Parker album, and it's got a song on it called Ornithology, and I remember liking it. So I put this record on and turn up the volume. I listen to this one song maybe a dozen times. I can't get enough of it. I can't get past it, and I'm really caught up in the saxophone solo, and I get excited and decide to tackle Thelma. I undress, and I'm waiting for her to come out of the bathroom. She comes out and sees me naked with an erection, and she smiles and walks over to me. She puts her hand on it, and just like that, just like somebody turns a valve, I go limp. She throws my pecker down against my thigh and climbs aboard her exerciser and rides off. We have a little bit of deception via Craig not telling his wife what was really going on with him and the baseball team and the brief visit with David and then his son finding out the truth about why he was home that night and the inevitable humiliation that Peter would feel once he goes back to camp and the other boys tease him about his son, I mean his father, God, his father being off the team. Because you know people are just going to assume that he's off the team for good. And in a sense he is, especially given what I know about the ending. But it's it's difficult for me to not side with, with Craig because he is the protagonist. And I don't really like the way that Thelma is shaming him. But he does give an effort. And for some reason, as soon as his wife tries to mount him, he loses his erection. He has a fear of performance. But at the same time, maybe it's indicative of a greater problem within their marriage as well. Just as his erectile dysfunction and his difficulty playing baseball is indicative of a greater problem within himself. Mart and I were out in the yard. Daddy pushed his head out the window of his office and asked us to come in. Daddy's office was next to our house. We walked inside and found Daddy standing beside the sort of heavy fella. Boys, Daddy said, this is Bud Powell. I didn't know who he was. I just looked up at his smiling face. I liked his face. Bud Powell, the piano player, Daddy said. The famous piano player. I didn't know who he was, but if Daddy said he was famous, then he was special. Hello, Mr. Powell, Martin said. Mr. Powell nodded a hello and smiled. Fuck you, Kendall, Jesus. I didn't say anything. I was staring at him with wide open eyes. Bud Powell laughed really loud and grabbed my hair and pulled my head back. It looked at my face and said, You remind me of Bird. I want to stop here for a moment and mention the fact that uh, Monk Ellison in... Um, Jesus, and uh, Erasure is also named partially for a jazz musician, and the name escapes me at the moment. Anyway, I moved my eyes to Daddy. Mr. Powell was still holding me by the hair. Charlie Parker, Daddy said to me. I didn't know this name either, but I liked that he'd said I looked like Bird. Mr. Powell was playing over at Fort Bragg. Oh my God, I just got why they call him Bird. Okay. All this makes sense given the ending of the the novel, okay? And I'm not going to spoil it for you. If you don't know how this ends, if you've never read this book before, you're going to have to go read it. But, my God, 
all these little subtle hints about the ending that I didn't pick up the first time I read it because I didn't know how it ended. I didn't expect it to end the way that it did. The fact that he shoots birds down and he's called bird. There are this, all, all these references to flying. Yeah. You're not sick, I asked. He was still holding my head back. No, I'm okay. Mr. Powell, Daddy said. Bud. Okay, bud. Daddy smiled. We're going fishing tomorrow morning, and I was wondering if you'd like to join us. Oh, gee, said Mr. Powell. Thanks a lot for the offer, Doc, but we're leaving early in the morning for a gig up in New Jersey. Well, maybe next time, Daddy said. Why don't you boys run along? Mr. Powell let go of my hair, and Daddy, and whoa, and Martin and I went back into the yard. I like him, I said to Martin, looking back at Daddy's office. Martin didn't say anything. He just started off. Where are you going? I asked, following him. I'm going to shoot sparrows. I stopped. I didn't go with him. The next morning, the bell rang, and Ma jogged to the door and opened it. It was Mr. Powell, and he was confused to see my mother wearing a heavy coat running in place. Who are you? Ma asked. Mr. Powell, I said, running to the door. Mrs. Souter, he greeted Ma. Come in, Ma said. Ben, she called Daddy. Hey there, bird, Mr. Powell said to me. Bud, said Daddy, walking into the room. Hey there, Doc, I decided to take you up on the fishing. Daddy rode the boat. The, whoa, I am on a fire tonight. Uh, Daddy rode the boat out into the middle of the river. With the rest of us, with the four of us, it was a tight fit. The sun was strong and the mosquitoes were thick. Mr. Powell seemed real happy to be with us. Daddy and Mr. Powell were sitting at the, either end of the boat. This is my special spot, Daddy said. I can guarantee you big ones. Mr. Powell laughed. All right, Doc. He looked at me. I can't get over how much you look like Bird. Round the eyes. Round the eyes. He grabbed my face and tilted it from side to side, looking. The mouth, too, Doc. Your boy got his lips like Bird. I put my finger to my mouth and traced the outline of my lips. He let go of my face. What do you want to be when you grow up, asked Mr. Powell. Martin and I looked at him. What about you, Marvin? That's Martin. Mr. Powell nodded. I want to be a dentist. Mr. Powell was silent for a second as he looked over at the water. What about you, Bird? A ball player, I guess. Baseball? No, no. You should go into music. God damn it, Kendall. You should pick up on the saxophone. You got the lips for it. Lips just like Bird. I looked at Daddy and saw him smiling at me. He was sliding his hook through the nightcrawler. Maybe you should think about that, Craig, Daddy said. About taking up the saxophone. Daddy dropped his line in. Why was your wife wearing that coat, Doc? Daddy sighed and then he looked at Mr. Powell. Well, bud, I'll tell you. She's crazy. So I take Lou home and by the time I get home myself, it's pretty late. I walk into the house, and the first thing I hear is Thelma pedaling on her exerciser. I don't even go into the bedroom. I just walk over to the stereo and put on that Charlie Parker record and listen to that one song over and over. I just can't seem to get enough of it. I get to thinking about the saxophone solo on here recording and notice how things get built around one melody. Even when the melody ain't played at all, somehow it's there, and it's waiting when the saxophone is finished singing. And that's just when the that ooh, that's just what the saxophone does. It sings. 
Have you ever listened to the same song over and over and over again? I have a few like that in my life. The first one that I can remember, actually a couple of them. So I went through this phase in college where I was really getting into the head of my characters, but also kind of getting into the head of myself, so to speak. And, you know, I have obsessive compulsive disorder, so I I get obsessed with various things. So I'll put it that way. But I was sitting in the quad of my college and playing Misunderstanding or Turn It On Again by Genesis over and over and over and over. And I was listening to that album Duke by Genesis over and over again. And then I listened to Mama by Genesis over and over again. Last year, and the, uh, the year before that, I had two songs that were on constant repeat for me. Promises by Savage Garden. I mean, I would play it and press repeat on it so it would play over and over and over and over and the same thing for 50 50 clown by cocteau twins i love that song if there's ever a movie or series made of anything i ever write i want that song in it it's amazing but i don't know what it is it's like a manic ocd thing for me but at the same time i get it you know, and when I was younger, I used to listen to the songs and I would skip over to the guitar solo and I'd listen to the guitar solo over and over again, especially Randy Rhodes. I notice all of a sudden that I don't hear the exerciser anymore and I look around to see Thelma. She stands there for a second and pulls the sleeves. Son of a bitch, my fucking Kindle decided to turn off. All right. She stands there for a second and pulls the sleeve of her pajamas across her forehead. Then she turns and walks back into the bedroom. I climb into the bed and I get up to switch off the stereo. The music is off and I'm heading for the bedroom and I hear Thelma get out of the bed and start pedaling again. Don't you think you're overreacting, I ask as I walk into the bedroom. No. Could you stop pedaling for a second? Think of Peter, he's trying to sleep. She stops pedaling and gets off the machine and climbs into bed. I sit on the bed and start to take my shoes off. Why has this man got his shoes on inside? She lets out a real loud sigh like she wants to ask me what's on her mind. What is it, I ask. Nothing. She's sitting up in the bed. Okay. I should have married your brother. Yeah. At least he has a normal job. What do you mean normal? I stand up and pull off my britches and climb under the bed. I wish you were a dentist like your brother. Who wants to stick his fingers in people's mouths all day? At least you'd be home. You wouldn't have to go out of town and pull teeth. At least you'd be able to... She starts crying. You're like your mother, you know. I roll over and close my eyes. That's it. Just ignore me. I'm not ignoring you. I'm tired. Well, it's not my fault. I'm not to blame. There's nothing wrong with me. Of course it's not your fault, and I sit up. Please try to be patient. Please try to understand. Understand? It's been two months. I've been patient. Okay. It's okay for you to have a headache, but when I say no, it's another story. Is that it? So we're even. Jesus. I roll over and go to sleep, and I wake up with a terrible headache. She emasculates her husband for his profession, despite the fact that as a baseball player, he's been very successful up until recently. He's been 
allegedly a fairly good husband and maybe a good lover up until recently, and then this sudden turn. And I mean, maybe there are other issues at play here that we're unaware of as the audience, but this is a fictional relationship, so there. But all of this is to say that this leads up to him leaving home, and he takes the idea that his teammate gave him and gate. Yeah, that's correct, Patrick. Don't worry. And he decides to go on a a, a a one man solo vacation. Unbeknownst to you, the listener, I have gone through and read more of the book on my own, just sitting here in my office. And I am here to report to you that one token thing that I forgot from my first reading is that Suter goes around playing that Charlie Parker song for everybody. He brings a record player with him, goes to his boss's office and plays it, goes to a restaurant and plays it and gets kicked out, and on his birthday, he plays it for everyone at his birthday party until they leave. And his wife accuses him of being like his mother because he's obsessed with the song. So, a couple of days walk by and most all I've done is listen to that song. I'm walking around downtown and I pass a music store. I look through the window at the saxophones and then I go inside. What can I sell you? asks the clerk. I'm interested in a saxophone. What kind? The kind Charlie Parker plays. I think it's an alto. An alto. How much do they cost? Well, there's a whole range of prices. How much are you willing to spend? I hadn't thought about it. They start at about $300. Can I see one of those? Sure can. This one's $400. Is it hard to play? I mean, to learn. Piece of cake. I'll take it. Do I need anything else? Just a reed. He puts a reed on the mouthpiece. Goes right here. You just tighten these. I nod. You gotta remember to suck it, though. I look at him. The reed, get it soaked, he pauses. Bite down and don't blow out your cheeks. I look at him. The mouthpiece. Should I have a book? Nah, you don't need a book. I write him a check for $400. He looks at the check. Craig Suter, the baseball player? No. I've seen you on television. I leave. I go to the park and spend a few hours trying to blow through the horn. Then I head home. When I get home, I don't see Thelma or Peter. I look out the window and across the street at what at that white guy's house. Bill, that's his name. I remember it now, Bill. His front door opens and out steps Thelma and my jaw drops and I watch as she walks toward the house. I open the door. So I was right, I says. Jesus, Thelma, why him? Why some white guy? What are you talking about? What am I talking about? I'm pacing. I'm talking about adultery, fooling around, you carrying on with that neighbor Bill. I've never seen you this way before. You've never seen me just this way? I was borrowing some paprika, see? She holds up a little tin. Paprika? You can do better than that. Paprika? What kind of single man keeps paprika in his house? He, I mean, he does have a point. I, I've never needed paprika for anything. Thelma walks into the kitchen. He's very nice. I follow her. I'm sure. Who borrows paprika? Are you through? I don't say anything. 
I just walk out of the kitchen and pace around the living room. Then I go back to the kitchen. I know how to get to the bottom of this. What? I'm going to have a word with Bill. I head off to the front door. Craig, no. She's behind me. I open the door. Yes. Thelma follows me across the yard. She's pleading, no, please. Nothing's going on. I swear, Craig. We'll see. We'll see. I ring Bill's bell. Bill pulls open the front door. I slap him flat-palmed in the chest, and he rocks back. What's the story, Bill? He looks at me and then at Thelma. What's going... I interrupt him. Let's have it, Bill. What are you talking about? I'm talking about you and my wife. My hands are in fist. Bill, Thelma says, I'm sorry. He's, He's crazy lately. I turn to Thelma. Crazy! I'm not crazy, and I'm sure to hell not blind. Let's talk, begins Bill. Are you ready, Bill? I ask. What for? I punch Bill in the face, and Thelma jumps on my back. I shake her off and chase Bill across the room, and I tackle him. His head hits the door frame, and he starts to bleed. You're crazy! Screams Thelma. You're insane! I stand over Bill and look down at him. I walk back to my house and collect my record, my phonograph, and my saxophone. I leave home. And that is the end of part one, apparently. I'm going to stop here for now. We've gotten through a lot of the book together, have we not? We've had some great times. You've laughed. I've cried. I've laughed. You've cried. We've jerked each other off. Uh, We're not going to do anything else beyond that because that's sinful, okay? And it might make Suter's mom mad. So, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. And you think about the phallic imagery of a man sucking on a saxophone. Bye. Bye.